Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I mean, the, the first thing I've got to ask is how many people actually watch or listen to this programme in the first place? Right, so that's, you know, <laughs> two filters occasionally. Basically what happens is we talk about rugby league on a, a Monday night or as it has been for the last couple of years because of the thing, whenever we can be bothered to do it. Uh, usually uh, live from uh, above the wonderful Philip Howard books in North Leeds. Um, and today we're live in front of you. I mean, we've done two of these shows before in Wakefield and in Castleford, and now we thought we'd come to the uh, place in the Wakefield district which has the best stadium of the three. I mean, we're all shocked that Castleford are not going to get a brand new stadium. We'll look at the front of the League Express this way. Trinity, no more mocking our stadium, it says there. As long as Mr Carter doesn't listen to this, we'll be all right. Right, the panel tonight, as we look ahead to uh, the World Cup and uh, back at the last year, We'll start right at the end. Professor Tony Collins, author, historian, and as everyone is these days, a podcaster. Next to him is the uh, is editor-in-chief, editor-at-large. What's your title, Phil? Twice. Rugby League prostitute. Rugby League prostitute, Phil Kaplan. You may have heard him on uh, TalkSport at, what, three in the morning, four in the morning? Quarter past four, I think. Quarter past four in the morning. In the slot in Pyongyang. Uh, next, <laughs> home of the pylons, who might play, you know, before New York. Uh, next to him... Uh, a Leeds Rhinos and England Wheelchair International on the long list for the 2022 Golden Boots. I mean, we'd have, we'd have already given out that. We're fully in favour of giving out the uh, Golden Boot for last year and this year now, but you know we're not the International Rugby League, unfortunately. Uh, that's uh, Nathan Collins. Uh, next to him, a long-time match official, now Director of Operations and Legal at the RFL, so you're not allowed to bring him anymore. It's Robert Hicks. Uh, next day, <laughs> uh, journalist and podcaster, also Australian, uh, big fan of clubs. Love Can him. I just say I didn't have anything to do with the decision to postpone the World Cup. No relation to Peter Van. You are representing. Yeah, Derek Beaumont. Derek Beaumont loves him. Any other clubs? Are you banned from Leicester? Um, I don't think I am technically banned, but I haven't been since they got relegated the time before last. So. Yeah. John Davidson. And next to me, the organiser of the Rugby League Record Keepers Club, which is a thing I should probably join, but if you wanted me as a member, it probably wouldn't be a club I'd need to be in, uh, or whatever that phrase is. And Neil Armstrong. 
Uh, so we're going to talk about rugby league for uh, 40 minutes or so, then have a break, then talk about rugby league for another 40 minutes. If you've listened to the podcast or the show before, you'll know I start off with a question of our guest. Phil then asks all the questions for the rest of these 30 minutes, which saves me doing any work, which is great because I'm from Wakefield and I'm lazy. Um, Phil, the World Cup, it's a year away. We were uh, <coughs> excited to be in Manchester last week as they relaunched the event with 100 days to go, whatever it is. We were sold on the uh, promise of breakfast. We thought bacon butty, sausage sandwiches, no, Danish pastries, very disappointing. First misstep from those running the World Cup. But Phil, we, we came away from there extremely excited about what's going to happen. 107 days since the announcement of the postponement to rearranging 61 matches, um, 21 teams, 18 venues. They've done a phenomenal job. Uh, it was almost as if their arm was twisted up, up, up their back. They did everything they could as far as we could see to, to keep the original dates. Whether that would have worked or not uh, will be subject to the, some of the debate that we're going to have. Uh, certainly didn't look great with the Rugby Union Internationals going on at the same time, but I think there was a general feeling that because it is now going to sit between the Commonwealth Games and the Football World Cup, that this whole tranche of uh, real top quality sport in this country or involving teams from this country, we actually sit quite comfortably at they stressed that um, clearly the BBC retained their commitment that they'll show all 61 matches and uh, we've all so enjoyed watching Nathan and uh, his teammates. I think that, that is a part of the sport we get really excited about, same with the women's game. Um, and the other thing that they did stress is that we've now got three finals in Manchester over a, a two-day period. So you can actually make a, a huge weekend of going to the wheelchair final on the Friday night, getting drunk out of your mind, sober enough enough to go to the women's final uh, followed by the men's final then getting drunk out of your mind and waking up sometime on Sunday um, still in Manchester which has never happened before uh, well obviously people have been drunk in Manchester before but um, no I think we came away from that uh, rejuvenated with the fact that they've done a, a hell of a lot of the groundwork and um, it, it is no doubt all the panellists will talk about how important the World Cup is, not just as a showpiece event in itself, but actually what it could do for the sport at a time when it really needs it. I don't think that was the official line from the World Cup, you can come to Manchester and get drunk though, was it? Not, not on the record, ah, at least. Right, I must have written that down. Come and enjoy the world-class uh, hospitality, as someone would say. Uh, Nathan, you, you've got a, a whole year to prepare. Obviously when things got cancelled or postponed around all this time, what were you feeling? Obviously, you'd built yourself up to this World Cup this autumn, and it gets moved back a year. Yeah, obviously, a frustrated staff when it first got cancelled, you know, we'd been preparing, you know, that, that whole year to play the World Cup, but, you know, it's just like, the next 1% is for us to get better, and, you know, more time for us to improve. And you've just played in a very tough couple of games against the French, who... Are the number one seeds the world champions? What, what, do you, what have you taken from those matches going into next year? Um, you know, they've still got a lot of good players that you know played over the years. Some of them have played in World Cups before, and you know, they're, they're class players. And, you know, they always have been. So, yeah, they're a very good team and tough opponents. And you get to play well. You open the competition against the Australians at the Copper Box. There's nothing better than it would be to open the World Cup and smash the Australians. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Got to play to the audience. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think the pressure—the pressure will be on England because I think in the wheelchair game they're the biggest chance of becoming World Cup winners. Um, you know, with all due respect to the men's and the women's teams, I think them and France are the two best teams in the world. So, yeah, yeah I think winning a World Cup on home soil. 
probably doesn't get any be- any better or any bigger. Yeah, definitely. Can't wait for it. <laughs> we, asked, we asked Nathan there about having to, to wait a year. Uh, Robert Hicks, you've just hung up the whistle, although apparently maybe not. Yeah, no, I hung up the whistle unofficially, Richard, before the World Cup had got cancelled. Uh, the theory being that I would have potentially refereed at the World Cup and then retired. So, uh, personally speaking, it's probably a, a year too late for me now. Uh, for the sport, I think it was, wasn't the best thing at the time. Uh, but being a glass kind of half full kind of guy, I think it probably gives us a great opportunity. Uh, there was a lot of community engagement and activity that would have been planned in the last 12 months that was cancelled because of COVID. That community activity would have transcended the sport and ultimately that's what the World Cup has to do. It has to transcend the communities and the, the fans that watch it week in, week out. It has to get into new schools and to new children and, and inspire people to play the sport and watch the sport that, that perhaps don't do it now. I mean, so... I, I think actually it probably could end up being the best thing for the sport in this country that it, it got delayed a year. Uh, it certainly didn't feel it at the time, and I know there was a lot of press and a lot of internal positioning around where, whether that was the right thing. But I think now looking back, it gives us a great opportunity to, to deliver something a little bit more like what we wanted to deliver pre-pandemic. And, and John and his team will go through some very short-term pain, and then they'll grow again to, to become a a fit-for-purpose organisation for a World Cup, which will be will be phenomenal. And, and it is, I think Phil's right, it, it fits in between two major international events. Uh, it's going to be an exciting 12 months. We've just got to take the most, make the most of it and talk it up as much as we can. And we need the Aussies to come. <laughs> well, they've signed a bit of paper now. Kiwis? Like Neville Chamberlain, they've signed <laughs> the paper. They'll just do what they're told. Would you be tempted out of... I'd love to referee a World Cup. Yeah, absolutely. Are you, are you allowed to? You know, yeah, I, I could still technically. I'm still technically on the international panel, so at the minute I'm technically a referee for the World Cup. Uh, I would be amazed if my performances were of the level of the full-time group. They're, they're an exceptionally conscientious group. Uh, they'll be fantastic next season, I'm sure. They'll be chomping at the bit to take my place, and I expect one of them will take my place. So I don't expect to referee the World Cup, but we'll see. All these. We're not blaming New Zealand. It's only the Australians who didn't really want to come over. Um, Professor Collins, how important is the World Cup to rugby league? Obviously, the first rugby World Cup played in this code. Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the first. The, it was the French who came up with the first proposal all the way back in 1934. Almost as soon as they they, sat, they started playing the game, they had the, the vision to say we've got to, we've got to have an international World Cup tournament. Um, I think it's very important for the game, uh, as Phil um, pointed out, it, because it comes between Commonwealth Games and the Football World Cup, it puts us on a pedestal. There's, con- you know, there's national consciousness of the sport, which is something we always we always struggle for. You know, to, um, I mean, one of, for example, it, it's interesting. One of the things I'm doing, Mark, I'm teaching uh, a course on sports leadership in London. None of the people from uh, from rugby league backgrounds at all. Uh, not almost none of them know anything. About rugby league, they're all based in the south. Most of them work in London. They do know bits about the NRL because it's seen as a you know an attractive, you know, high-profile competition. But when it comes to Super League, they don't know anything. Um, so this gives us an opportunity to get into the consciousness of people who are either are outside traditional inverted commas uh, rugby league areas, or who aren't necessarily aware of the game on the uh, on, on a day-to-day basis. But I do think the thing to guard against. One of the things you find is that every time there's a World Cup, 
in any sport, people always say, there's going to be massive interest and uptake's going to go through the roof and this is going to solve all our problems. It doesn't. When England, uh, well, well in, in Union, when uh, the England won the World Cup in whenever it was, I can't remember. Uh, 2003. Within the last 20 years in Australia. Um, nothing really much happened because they didn't have the uh, infrastructure in place to actually capitalise on people thinking, oh, I wouldn't mind playing this. I mean, obviously it's rugby, so maybe they didn't have that type of response. Um, but that, that's the key question for the game, I think. We know it's going to be a success. We hope that, we're, you know, that England and the other home nations are going to do really, really well. It's going to be a classic World Cup. But we've just got to keep on doing the things that the game does on a day-to-day -day level, but do them better, more professionally, with more good intent than what we've done. So in a sense, it's not the World Cup's going to solve anything. It just gives us a platform to get our act together on a day-to-day -day level. And the World Cup trophy is beautiful. It is the best trophy in all sport, isn't it? Yeah. Return of the Cockrell. The Cockrell yeah, is back. It's a great, it's, it's a great, it's, it's a great trophy. John, it's your fault that Australia are coming because you are our token Australian this evening. Um, how was the World Cup perceived outside of this country? I mean, did, could they care less? Is that why they didn't bother coming over? I know COVID's a convenient excuse for everything. I think um, it depends who you, who you talk to. I think I think something that people maybe don't realise, um, well, particularly Australians in Australia don't realise how insular the country it is. It is located in the what's called the arse end of the earth and people do really only think about themselves and the rest of the world seems because because of the numerous oceans that surround it everything is quite far away and also rugby league in australia is located in essentially two states much like you know the m62 game here but it is it's not big in melbourne it's not big in adelaide it's not big in perth it's not big in the desert um people tend to think and, and also i think combined with that the, the establishment of origin and origin being a money making behemoth now that is the focus and a lot of people don't worry about what else goes on but I think Australia does actually need international rugby league um, it's probably the only thing we can win at the moment anymore because um, we're not very good at cricket or rugby union or we can swim a bit but that's about it um, all right at hockey but no it does need and I think rugby league needs that maybe maybe rugby league needs Australia more than the other way around but it gives rugby league legitimacy and I think um, if you look at the last two World Cups, which I've been lucky enough to, to cover extensively, both here and, and over there, um, they're fantastic tournaments and it does put the sport on a, on a different scale. And I think after you have a great World Cup, people sort of realise, oh, this is, this is great, we should do it again. And then usually nothing happens for four years or five years. Um, but I was at the final, um, what was it, 2017, and um, I, I can remember Mel Meninga and Cameron Smith saying, you know, International Rugby League is back and you know, England are really strong and we've got to do this again soon. And Unfortunately, we haven't progressed on, so hopefully next year we, we can do that and take the sport to, to new heights. I mean, fairness, the Kangaroos did tweet that they're back you know, last week, so you know, they are back. It's good to see them. I mean, I did see an Australian shirt on, uh, in the background of the Celebrity Apprentice this week, so, you know. It's good to see International Rugby League on BBC One at midnight on a Monday. Well, we, if we can talk quickly about the Rugby Union Internationals have been on, I think the All Blacks have lost twice in the, and, and the Wallabies have lost and South Africa, who are the world champions, have lost. That gives Rugby Union, instead of being a three or four country sport, you know, it's a ten, gives it a, a lot more legitimacy. And I think that would help the Kangaroos being beaten in a, in a World Cup, whether it was by 
New Zealand, England, Tonga, you know, that would be good and would probably change a lot of people's minds, hopefully, in, in Australia. So we could bring back the 1997 Super League Tri-Series or whatever it was. <laughs> Queensland versus New South Wales versus uh, New Zealand. And offered that to Australia, would they probably be happy with that? Well, I, I was an ARL fan, so that, to me that didn't exist. Um, yeah, that was, that was a joke. Yeah. It was Rupert Murdoch's fault. But um, No, I, th- I think there are, there are a lot of insular people in Australia who, who only think about the NRL and state of origin. But, um, you know, you look at the arrival of, of Tonga, you know, how strong New Zealand is. Obviously, you know, England's got a lot of talent. Um, and there are other countries, Samoa, Fiji, you know, who, who have improved. So it bodes well, I think, for the future of the game. And also, the, you know, the women's game, the wheelchair game and the other variants that, that are going to be held around the tournament next year. If Australia didn't win two of the three World Cups, though, would the, would the be crying for some kind of inquiry as to why? I think there'd be. I think if if the Kangaroos <coughs> lose, I mean, I think the the New Zealand women are, are very very good, and that's kind of a toss of a coin really um, when those two teams play. But I think if um, if the Kangaroos lost the final next year, there'd be I don't want to say a, a royal commission, but there'd be <laughs> there'd be a lot of teeth gnashing and a lot of whinging and moaning. Um, so, yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting. I think they've lost two of their last four games. Um, someone might have informed me on, on Twitter. So, you know, I'm sure Mel Meninga wouldn't want to go down history as, as the coach who, who lost the World Cup final. He might have got rid of the royal family by then, though. You never know. I don't think so. number one in the world. I don't know why he's pretending that they're any good. Tenth of I didn't no- say they were any good, Phil. <laughs> Tenth of November in York, 7.30 kick-off Australia, New Zealand in the Women's World Cup. I'm going to try... And go to the two games in Sheffield in the morning in the Wheelchair World Cup, France, USA, Wales, Scotland, and then zoom over to York to see that, along with France versus the Cook Islands. And, you know, like, records, very important things. Obviously, uh, on our podcast in history, there's been a massive debate, mainly caused by one person, about who should or shouldn't have a golden cap. Because the uh, Great Britain versus rest of the world game in 1998, yeah. uh, 1998 doesn't count. Obviously, it should. We, we bought in the golden cap from Wish. Um, how excited are you about the World Cup coming? Obviously, with a year to go. Yeah, very. Um, I think you know, people have already spoken about um, the kind of focal point that it brings to sport and the ability to kind of transcend the normal rugby league um, viewing public. Um, and maybe tap into new audiences and raise a profile of the game. And I think that's really important. Um, I think we kind of touched on it a little bit with some of the comments before as well about the galvanising spirit that things have. Um, we're kind of seeing that from a stat side of things, from a record-keeping side of things, because you know, to the point on what games count as internationals and all that sort of stuff, that hasn't been fully defined in the past. And you know, there isn't. And, and Tony knows quite well the work that. Um, he and myself and a few others have been doing with International Rugby League and actually pulling together that kind of defined list of here are the international games and this is um, what people should be recognising as such. Um, That's one example, I guess, of many that there'll be from community games to, um, you know, to other kind of social projects that's going on. It does become something of a focal point and a galvanising spirit, I think, um, when you've got the tournament coming. I was probably originally in the camp of hoping it would be postponed until next year anyway. Um, I did think that the lead-up that we would probably have through this season was not going to be ideal to being able to do those sorts of um, initiatives and really gain the full benefit that hosting a tournament has. Um, The circumstances which led to the postponement obviously were far from ideal and that uh, kind of left a bad taste in the mouth for a lot of people, I think. But 
you know, John Dutton and co have done a fantastic job, as Phil touched on at the start, in terms of getting that rearrangement all um, done in, in such a, a short space of time. And it does now give us, it, it feels like now is the real start of a full year's lead-up to the tournament, um, which would really allow all the benefits to uh, to kind of come through that, that you would hope to, to kind of get from it. So, um, yeah, all of that makes for a really exciting 2022, which is hopefully going to be played in an even more... Uh, maybe we can't say post-COVID world, but uh, a world which will feel more normal, hopefully, next year. So that, that can only be good for the game and good for the tournament, I think. 107 days ago, Phil, we were, we, we were really angry, weren't we? We, we were, I've never seen you so angry. And this was over Skype, so you know, wasn't even face-to-face. Didn't you, didn't you write a letter to Peter Flanders calling him? It's all your fault. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I adopted the Simon Johnson school of Colin and cowards. Now, um, just on a side issue, the, the man from Belle Isle who you mentioned, uh, if anybody heard him singing about five o'clock this morning, one can only apologise. Was, was he chasing him in his uh, dressing gown and slippers, as someone suggested he would be? There were a lot of dressing gown and slippers, to be fair, <laughs> but he wasn't one of them. Um, but yes, if anybody did hear him sing, um, it's almost as bad as his normal opinion on everything. No. How, how are you still awake, Phil? Because obviously you, you've Coffee. not run 100 miles with uh, Kevin Sinfield this morning. But a, a man who, of course, is involved in a very famous World Cup moment in 2013, which we probably, you know, never, never gets mentioned when they talk about him on BBC Breakfast on the morning. Um, I, I'm fine. I mean, getting in and out of the van is, is not quite the same as running or cycling 101 miles. It was just a, an absolute privilege to be part of something like that. And... Um, yeah, the superhuman feat of endurance that he's done, which went way beyond his comfort zone. And we know that even doing seven in seven, he's got an extended comfort zone that is uh, puts the rest of us in, in, in the shade. He, he really struggled through part of that, but there was no way he was going to give in. There was no way he wasn't going to do it. The, the, the medical support team um, and, and the uh, physiotherapists were absolutely fantastic. The cyclists that were with him were great morale boosters. Uh, but we talk about, I mean, it, it's relevant only from the point of view of the fact that, apart from the fact that I might fall asleep in a minute, um, it, we talked about raising profile um, and the whole thing of his entrance back into the stadium at Headingley, the way that BBC Breakfast came from the stadium, the fact that the amount that he raised almost doubled in that final hour and a half when people were watching it happen live. That's what a Rugby League World Cup can do. Um, and no doubt we'll talk about the state of the game, but if there was one minor nagging sadness at the back of it, it's that somebody like him who can transcend the profile of the sport in the same way that a World Cup can, isn't actually now involved in the sport. Um, and, and one of the other things I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on is that clearly we've got a telescoped amount of time before the next World Cup, which actually might be a good thing, because if that is going to be hosted in France, I think if you can go from what's hoped to be achieved here in the end of 22 to within only three years taking another um, World Cup in the Northern Hemisphere to a venue that hasn't had a complete <coughs> tournament since 1972, which ironically was the last time we won it. Um, that, again, you, you've got some continuity. I'd, I'd like to hear an announcement about what we're planning on doing in 2029 with a realistic <coughs> aim of actually being able to nail that into a calendar. But um, no, talking of... The selfless Mr. Sinfield, who should now be not Sir Kev but Saint Kev, um, what he has done over the last 24 hours 
is what a World Cup can be uh, if we get it right. You don't want to be knighted anyway. I've seen some of the people that are knighted. He's raised more money than some people who do get knighted. Yeah, for donate. a donate. Like to donate. They donate. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's <laughs> my theory. That's, oh, we're not on dodgy ground on that one. I, I think we're okay. We're part, we're part of the blue wall here. This is blue wall. <coughs> it's very exciting. New signings and everything today. We might talk about Fenderson in the second half of the programme. We, we talk about the state of the game. We joked earlier that they're going to get promoted this year. And it won't even be Super League to get promoted to. It's a Super League 2 or whatever. Um, we talk about Kevin Sinfield there. Of course, he has uh, played in World Cups, been part of key moments. What hasn't been seen before, to the extent it will be, is the wheelchair game, Nathan, and, and the likes of yourself and James Simpson and so many players who will become names that people will recognise over the next 12 months. How, how big a profile, how, how important is the profile that wheelchair rugby is getting at the moment ahead of the World Cup? So people are thinking... Well, I might go and watch some of these games across the country. You know, yeah, it's massive. You know, seeing me get a, you know, our first game on Sky and BBC earlier this year was just amazing because it's you know spreading the word about our sport that we played and um, to do that get um, more people watching in the sport and hopefully getting them involved is yeah is amazing. How tough is it out there? Because we hope. I mean, Phil's been to a couple of games. I was at the England Wales game earlier in the year. The the, the clank of the chairs. It's loud. It feels hard. What was he like actually getting out there and playing? Yeah, it's good. You know, I don't really. You know, I'm used to the you know the chairs smashing against each other now. You just block out the noises now. So yeah, it's not as tough as you know as you think it is. Oh, don't tell people. <laughs> I'm making it out to be superheroes. This is part of talking the, the game down, Tony. It's great that we've got so many elements, and we've got the physical disability World Cup as well, which is. Uh, going to be part of this tournament as well. It, it's going to be the most inclusive World Cup ever, which which is great for rugby league. It's just something else we can sell the game on. Well, absolutely, and I think you know rugby league is the, orig- the original equal opportunity sport because that's why it was founded. It was founded because the rugby union won't allow players to be paid for the time they took off work to play the game. So the northern clubs said, you know, we think everybody should have the right to play, uh, regardless of what the background is or whether they can afford it. You should have the right to pay to play and be paid for the fact you're drawing a crowd so and I think that's what we've not the, the game has historically not really uh, promoted in the way that it should do uh, you know I'm sure most people here know that it's got an exceptional record when it comes to the integration of black players you know, you know black players playing international rugby league in the 1930s long before uh, most other sports uh, and there's never but you know there's so the you know, rugby league it's not perfect it's by a long way and it's, um, but it's got a record that's better than, than other sports uh, and these are the things you should be pushing because you know it's, it's a highly competitive sports market out there and one of the things that people you know people don't just look at what goes on on the pitch when they come to choose a sport they choose a sport that they're comfortable with that they can identify with where they can see themselves people like themselves and I think that's a big part of the marketing of the game that we've, you know, we should we should make more of that. This is a sport that always welcomes people and is actually based on that welcoming of people. Um, and you know, to, in today's world, in the twenty first century, it's all about equality, inclusion, and diversity. Well, rugby league has that in its DNA. And I guess that's part of your role, Robert. Now is to, to kind of make sure that that happens uh, at, at the top level of the sport. Well, at all levels of the sport. Yeah, I think I think Tony makes. 
made some great points about the history of the sport, and I, th- I think you're probably right. We don't make enough of, of our history to some extent. I, I think we'd be incredibly naive, though, to say we haven't got challenges in those Absolutely, areas. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I think you've only got to look at what happened at, at York's Cricket recently to know that sport, I think ultimately sport generally has been born out of white privilege, pretty much every sport. So even even though rugby league was born out of being a working-class sport, deep down the people who, who created rugby league were middle-class mill owners who, who took it to the next level. Uh, but that's perhaps a, a theoretical argument that's not worth debating. It's it's a big challenge for us as a sport. And I think unless unless you actually listen to people who who are from those minority backgrounds, whether that be because they're gay, because they're black, because they've got some form of disability, and understand their lived experience, I think it's very difficult to formulate change. And I, it's easy for me to sit here as a white person involved in the sport and say, yeah, we're an inclusive sport. The reality is we've seen examples throughout the last 12 months where, where the sport has let itself down and we, we've got some challenges there for me I, I, I think I think the first thing you've got to do is you've just got to recognise that there is there is a challenge and you've got to hold your hands up I, I speak quite a lot with our inclusion board I speak quite a bit with Michael Lawrence because he sits on that board he's an eloquent person he, he understands the sport and he understands the challenges and if you listen to his lived experience you would not be saying that the sport was Everything in the garden was rosy. So, yeah. so, so we've got a lot to do there. We, we, we're, we're, we're making progress. I think the tackling plan and the and the, the working groups we've put in place are good. I, I would defend our record in terms of how we've dealt with some of the cases this year, even though there's been some criticism. Knowing the full facts and knowing knowing what we're, we're trying to achieve, I, I think our clubs are on board with that. Uh, I think the more you, you open up the women's game and the wheelchair game, PDRL. There's all sorts of other things that are going to come come over the over the hill in the next few years. Transgender participation is going to be one of those, and how you welcome all kinds of groups into your sport, uh, and don't just have a policy that says yeah you can play it because there there is an unintended consequence that when you bring a new new group of people from a slightly different background in, they will face discrimination of some form. So uh, you've got to help them integrate. We, we, I think the World Cup gives us that opportunity, by the way, because I think the World Cup is trying to, to reach those hard-to-tackle hard to subjects. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably all I can say at the minute. But I think, we will, I think you'll see some significant progress in the next 12 months. I think you'll, that will help when, once we appoint our inclusion lead. Uh, I think there's an exciting an announcement coming in the next few weeks in that regard. I, I think we'll see some change. I mean, at least the audience is a lot more diverse than the panel this evening. So that, that, that's one positive we, we've got. Um, and our boardrooms, I mean, ultimately, one of the chances I will have for all our boardrooms are most people in decision-making areas of clubs are white men. There's very few boardrooms with diverse backgrounds in them. And that's a challenge for, 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 for all sport, by the way. It's not just rugby league. It's a reality. Well, I think, I think as, as Tony has said and you've said, we've always been good at inclusion on the field, but it's off the field. It's in coaching. Yeah. You know, I mean, you look at um, Willie Poaching, you know, sort of the... The first sort of pref- yeah Polynesian coach Adrian Lamb, I think Adrian Lamb and Jermaine Coleman were probably the only black coaches last year. I mean, it's traditionally been a white man's profession, and that's obviously something that has to change because if you look at the the Polynesian diaspora and representation, um, that yeah, and they we need to we, be- we found that with our disciplinary panels that most people who got back involved in the sport in an administrative way were, were former white players rather than. 
we weren't finding players from minority backgrounds. And actually, then when you start to challenge yourself as to why they weren't, it's partly because they didn't see people in those positions before. So you actually have to go to them and say, please come and get involved and change it. And we've got, for example, we took Alan Hunt on as as a member of our disciplinary panels last year. We had our disciplinary review meeting on Friday, and it was a breath of fresh air to just listen to somebody else with a completely different mindset as to what some of these issues cause. We'll talk more about uh, diversity in the, in the second half when we talk about the state of the game because we'll have well more diverse panel in the second half. Well, at least more diverse anyway. Um, as we come towards the end of this first half of the evening, this first half, it's gone quick. Um, the World Cup coming up, one year's time, based mainly in the Northern Powerhouse. Well, at least Featherstone's got train. You know, Featherstone's got a railway station. Lee hasn't got a railway station. So, you know, it's one up for Featherstone. Has he got the, uh, Pig World? <laughs> no pepper pig. I've got to go there. It's a place to be. Be, be nice. They're funny in this world. You know, I've got to be nice. Be nice. Um, I'll go down the panel. What are you looking forward to most of this world cup? What are you looking forward to most of going to happen? For me, probably some of the games that don't necessarily jump out as the headlines. So I can remember my formative um, rugby league watching years, seeing New Zealand and Tonga play at Wilderspool in what's probably now regarded as one of the great World Cup matches. That, going into that game, you know, yeah, it was played at your local stadium, which is why we went, but people didn't necessarily go with any great expectations on that particular match. Um, I think now, with the breadth of teams that we've got, the breadth of tournaments that we've got, I think there's such a good chance of, you know, picking up on one of those games that is just going to kind of capture the imagination of people. Um, so I think it's difficult, you know, you, you're drawn towards the England games, you're drawn towards the big knockout matches, the finals and things. Um, but I think for me, the excitement comes in the, those little nuggets of games that you don't necessarily expect to be um, the, the, the thing that they turn out to be. Um, and I think that's quite exciting because that, that's the unpredictable element of, of a tournament that's got the breadth or a set of tournaments that's got the breadth of um, participation and interest in it. So. Um, yeah, I can't wait to see which of uh, which of the many varied things um, kind of comes out of that. Really, were you at the Halliwell Jones when Sonny Blue Williams bombed that try? Sonny Blue Williams, yes, that was, yeah. that was a great moment right in front of us. That that was very exciting. Well, he'd be playing for Samoa. He's retired, Rich. Can I tempt him back? Have you got some money? I haven't. Well, I think he'd come out for a few quid. He's <laughs> <laughs> not nicknamed Moneyball for his lack oh. of. Uh, we didn't get much at Toronto, did he? Get oh, I think he did. <laughs> well, I'll talk about Toronto later because yeah, they're they're a big city, and you know, big city Brian. Yeah. What, what are you looking forward to? Uh, well, the same, I think, in in the element that it's the, with no disrespect, the smaller nations, the unexpected storylines. Like 2017, it was Tonga. I think in 2013, it was the Americans getting to the quarterfinals. Um, the Wiggles doing a song about them. It's those kind of things that you don't expect um, and also um, something we don't unfortunately see all all the time um, is full stadiums you know that that kind of big big atmosphere that you only really get at Old Trafford or at the Challenge Cup final but genuine excitement and, and big atmosphere um, that you know it's, it's a big event that you want to be a part of and I think World Cups World Cups do that um, you know I was, I was lucky to be in 2017 in Tonga and that that game in Auckland and it's probably I, I've been lucky to uh, go to FIFA World Cups, Rugby Union World Cups, Ashes Tests, and that kind of that Tongan. I don't know what you would call it, but have just you been see. Have Castleford though? No, I haven't. Well, there you no, go. Sorry. Um, 
Yeah, the people, you know, lining up hours before singing hymns. I think there was a couple who just had a just married. They'd just come from their wedding. Like, just that kind of outpouring of emotion is, you know, is unremarkable. And I've not seen that in, in any other sport, whether it be, you know, Colombia v Uruguay and Brazil in 2014. So that kind of thing, I hope, you know, we get that and we can replicate that and really enjoy it. I'm not sure you could sing the songs from Post Office Road or The Jungle at church, but that's what you look forward to as a former referee? Do you, what are you looking abuse. forward to? In yeah, yeah. lots of abuse. <laughs> no, I, I, so I, I was lucky. I, I was involved in 13, both on the field and as an administrator off the field. I, I was involved in 17 on the field. I, I talked on your show about my most memorable moment as an official was, was Tonga, England. It'll, it'll live with me forever. I could name other internationals. I was in France when France played New Zealand and the Marseillaise was played in Avignon. And the, the atmosphere of those games is it, it, it indescribable, really. Unless you were in Auckland for that game, I don't think anybody will ever be able to understand how phenomenal it was. Uh, and I know loads of people say they were there. It feels like it was that I was there moment for everybody in the world, but it genuinely was unbelievable. Uh, I think you look forward to, to just see... If you're on the field, you look forward to showcasing your talents and hope you don't mess it up. You know, that's the main thing for you. Coming off the field, no-one's talking about you. Because I was on that, that Tonga-England game. I, I was with Matt Chechen, didn't mess it up. But public perception was he did because it suited the, the, the narrative to get Tonga to the final. Uh, all, all those things. But... Uh, International Rugby League is great because there is no partisanship. Unless England are involved in England, there's no real partisanship. So you do get nuggets of games. I, I was at Rochdale when Fiji played there. That was a phenomenal event. I, I was at the Lee Sports Village when the Cook Islands played. That was another full house, rocking atmosphere. They, they are just... They, World Cups in this country delivered right are always better. I, I think 13 was better than 17, partly because there were more full houses. There was. That yeah, was the reality was, yeah. of it. They, it got momentum and people worried after that first day if you remember there was a double header in Cardiff there wasn't massive crowds in the crowd all disappeared after England got beat and then the day after was the Sonny Bill Williams moment and I think that was when the World Cup suddenly came to light in this country in 13 and they are the moments you look forward to and I think you're right I think ultimately it's about those moments that you just don't expect to come in you'll be at a game and I would encourage people to go to as many games as they can because they'll be at a game and it may be involving Scotland or Jamaica where there is an unlikely outcome or it's going down to the wire and people will understand then why International Rugby League is so important uh, and why I think if we don't get it right this time we'll have missed a massive opportunity. I mean, whatever happened in Cardiff, it was still better than uh, Ireland versus Samoa. Was it Windsor Park, Phil? Was it just some random place no. in Belfast? Yeah. All, all I remember was Willie Poach and Gold. There were about 3,000 people there to open the... In the rain, in front of John Inverdale. It was good. Followed by a game at Twickenham. It rained in Ireland, that's surprising. <laughs> the 2000 World Cup, the high watermark of uh, rugby league failure. <laughs> misunderstood. Um, well, we'll do that at some point next year. It genuinely could be the reason why rugby league did take off after that. Didn't have much else to do. Had to go one way. <laughs> uh, Nathan, I mean, this is a different perspective because you'll, you know, fingers crossed, be playing in this. What, what are you looking forward to most? Yeah, hopefully I'll be playing it, you know, um, getting more fans in, new people watching the game, you know, broadcasting it to new, like, loads more different people around the world, and, um, yeah, hopefully winning it as well, so, yeah. 
Barring the, of We've got to sell that game out, though, haven't yeah. we? Let's be blunt. If we don't sell that World Cup final out at, at what was the GMAX, whatever it's called now, that would be the, the biggest same. missed opportunity. Having seen... Every, all anybody ever talks about is if they've been to a wheelchair game, you've just got to go and watch a wheelchair game. And so if we can't sell... I mean, that would be a great... If we could sell that out, that would be a massive thing for the sport and would take wheelchair rugby league to the next level. And, and actually, that is the... The women's game is massive, by the way. I think there's huge growth there. But if you want to be a truly inclusive sport, you've got to be able to say that we do all these different variants of our sport. And no matter whether you've got a learning disability, a physical disability, whether you're a man, a woman, whatever you are, you are welcome to play our sport and you can play at that level. I think that's the biggest opportunity for the sport. Bespoke arena in Manchester as well. Very exciting. Phil, I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I'm going to ask you anyway. I think there are three, if that's not being greedy. One is the um, the opening game, because I think we can sell out Newcastle 53,000 for England and Samoa. That's the springboard for the rest of the tournament. And if Samoa did bring the team that we think they can, um, then that is by no means a foregone conclusion. And uh, it should, should be an epic contest. I think the opportunity to go to the Emirates Stadium is massive, because although we talked about 80% of the games being in the north, which is a mainly financial consideration... Clearly, to go to a new venue like that, uh, which is earmarked to be um, an England game, um, if you could get 60,000 there, that would be phenomenal. I think a lot of people will go just to say that they were there. could be the one and only game played there. But the other one, going back to what Neil was saying particularly, you're always on the lookout for the game in the schedule that might give you something unexpected. Jamaica and Lebanon. I think if, you, if you're going to go to any game that's going to have the best atmosphere, where there's a possibility of a quarter-final place at stake, which would mean automatic qualification for the next World Cup, that's the one you've got to be at. If you can listen to a steel band, if you can have the taste of jerk chicken, um, and you can have the passion that the Lebanese have got for a fight, you've got all the ingredients there for the best of rugby league. You know, I'd lost my money. I was going to say Jamaica Island, you'd have said, but uh, even in three answers, out of what, 63 games in this World Cup? 61. 61. I can't count. Um, Tony, you get the final answer of the, the first half. What, what are you looking forward to most about this World Cup? I'm looking forward to it all. Um, it's, I think the great thing about the World Cup, and like Rob said, 2013 I thought was you know, the, the best one, is that you get a chance to see rugby league as you think it should always be. The way World Cups go, and certainly 2013 is a great example of this, um, 1995 is another great one as well. That's how the game should be every week. Now, obviously, there are, it's, it's a different thing. But you get that feeling. And I think, you know, if you're, certainly if you're a rugby league fan, you get a bit of a, a strut in your stride because things are going well in the World Cup. It's on the news almost every day of the week. So it's it completely changed. So it's just a fantastic experience. And I think with this one, it's... It's even more because it, it does have, uniquely for any sport, it's men's, women's and wheelchair. And I think that's something that's absolutely fantastic. And it kind of, you know, again, it just allows the game to be on the front foot, to, to hold its head up and to some extent forget all the other issues that we have to do with on a day-to-day basis. So it's, I'm just looking forward to it all and just melting into those, you know, that full month of... Um, so now, now we've uh, got to look at all those other issues now. We'll, we'll talk about those after our break. Uh, go get a coffee, cue for the loser, and we'll be uh, back in whenever we're back, 10 minutes or so. Now, joined on the panel 
by, it says here, former Leeds Bradford and England forward who's won every domestic comedy in the game. Is that true, Danny Capri? I don't know. I've heard that too. It must be. Even when the trouble with Bradford went. Yeah, uh, trouble yeah. with Bradford. Double yeah. with Leeds. Double with Leeds. Champions Cup. Yeah, I guess so. Leeds, Shield with Leeds. Yes. Yeah. 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 Just missed out on a World Cup. I mean, <clears throat> just well, as a loose term, isn't it? <laughs> just, uh, I, I just missed out on the World Cup squad, yeah. Oh, no, 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 in 17. No, I mean, me. Oh, right, yeah. Same with England. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, TV star now. Loose term. BBC and Sky. Yeah, I, there's not, you know, you talked about the diversity of things. There's not many women in the game uh, that could string a few words together, so... It's <laughs> just picked from a very small pool. We need to find some more, though, because uh, I ended up doing the commentary on the, well, co-commentary on the Betfred Women's Super League Shield final, in which they don't win a shield, they win a cup. I mean, I shouldn't mention that, because obviously Fenton lost in the final. Yeah. Curveball. Curveball, but yeah. You know, it was good, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a great day. It was a good day, regardless. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I forgot. Yeah. And you've retired now, so... Uh, like, like Rob, are you, you're not tempted to come out of retirement for the World Cup. I'm not saying you're not going to get picked for England, but uh, Canada, Brazil, Papua New Guinea, France, Cook Islands. Any any heritage with those? Canadian, Canadian, Canadian. Yeah, but not enough. No, my days are my boots are hung up for for rugby league. Uh, for now, for now, forever. Yeah, good run, a good short run, a really short run. Uh, like you said, won won quite a few bits and pieces. Played for a couple of teams. Uh, I'm playing in the World Cup, so it's a bit of a box-ticking exercise. I've, I've picked a few. What, being on this panel? Yeah, I mean, this was the highlight of my career so far. It's not finished yet, so I'm going to have to keep myself calm. What was it like playing in the World Cup in 2017? As we discussed, it wasn't the greatest of World Cups, but you know, on the field, what was it like as an experience? I think, you know, for, for the women, it was massive. We, you know, the 13 was quite a low profile here, and the numbers were quite good, you know, Batley and the Dewsbury. It was... It was for the women's game then it was it was fantastic but then to go out to a, Australia where rugby league is for women you know is also a recognised sport and it's respected and uh, the women are you know they're, they're seen as you know athletes and they're seen as the professionals are out there as well so that was the difference between 13 and 17 is that Australia went you know had pro contracts as did New Zealand and therefore the profile of the game was huge out there and I think we were averaging about 5,000 per game um, at Cronulla Sharks, they're all played at Cronulla Sharks, which is wicked. Um, and the effort that they made during the, I mean, it was a very swift turnaround. We landed on the Sunday morning, uh, we played on the Thursday, then we played on the Sunday, played the Wednesday, played the Sunday, lost, flew home Monday. <laughs> so it was probably the quickest trip to Australia I could have been on, but yeah, it was incredible. And, you know, for the women, it's quite difficult now to, to look back on it and say, you know, because I know how good this the next World Cup's going to be for the women and how much bigger it's going to grow. But at the time, we were playing in community fields where we had to go check the pitches beforehand for for the Sunday morning dog walkers. We had to wash our own kit. We had to, you know, drive our own cars to venues and, and drive back. So at the time, to fly out to Australia, to have everything on a plate and to have the coaches and the hotels and all of the, um, you know, like everything, all the, the banners and all of the publicity and stuff was just incredible and it felt a million miles away from what we had over here so yeah it was huge at the time and so I'm really excited about how big for the women particularly uh, next year's is going to be random question Neil 
record keeping. Yeah. I mean, Danica's got a, a heritage number. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, we're starting from scratch on this one, aren't we? I know, I know women's rugby league has existed for a long time, but we seem to... We've forgotten all that, because it's not in 2017, we Everything that happened before 2017 didn't exist. So, when they were good, we, we've forgotten that now. Are there any records around? Do we know what, what has happened, what, what's going on? I think one of the challenges with a women's game especially and the men's game, if you go back far enough, is availability of information. Um, did local newspapers cover um, and report on games? Um, if you haven't got that source information, local press is the main source or trade press. Um, official records, is there such a thing? Not really. Um, I don't know, Robert might tell me there's a load of uh, archive material somewhere um, at the RFL, but I suspect there probably isn't. Um, so you are relying on what's reported at the time. Um, Julia Lee's just got some funding, um, which is fantastic for um, for uh, a heritage project to kind of celebrate the women's game, which is brilliant and is linked with the great work at Heritage Key and the um, Huddersfield University archive there. Um, I am going to be catching up with her in a few weeks. Um, so we'll see what we can do from a record-keeping perspective there to kind of help. Um, I think we'll, we will be able to help. There'll be some research we'll be able to do and some sources we can kind of draw on. Do I expect to get something comprehensive? Unfortunately, probably not. Um, it's not too far back, though, so there will be people that's involved. So um, you might expect to call Dan and <laughs> might, uh, see what you've got scribbled down anywhere. Um, but you know, typically players don't keep their own records of stuff. Um, so you know that you can try and tap into that sort of thing. But you, you're very much piecing the jigsaw together, I think, on... Um, on any record keeping but probably the women's game um, will be uh, a challenge I suspect money <laughs> it's a big thing uh, your voice has not been paid in your career have you? no a handful of players may have been no there's, there's not payment there's um... oh that was just a story I was told about yeah I mean there's lots of uh, stories at the minute but there are some girls that are paid expenses at now which is sounds really minor but that's massive you know just fuel expenses or um, match day fees or whatever it might be so that we are moving in the right direction the women are going to be paid for the World Cup they were paid for the World Nines um, they were paid a token amount to go out to Papua New Guinea I think um, it would have been a leg of mutton back in the day wasn't it Tony <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, legs of mutton or um, cloth for suits that's another um, way of getting around the amateur regulations yeah, <laughs> you win some cloth make a sale out of it Probably I would have been happy with that. It's funny, isn't it? Because like I don't, for me, it's that cliche thing of it wasn't a, a, an elite sport or it wasn't a professional sport, and it, well, it isn't now. And that kind of is the beauty of it a little bit. I think is that we're willing to push the elite status and work hard for it. You know, I've retired mainly because I can't, I can't keep up with what's needed in the elite status, the training and, and the commitment that they need. You know, three times a week plus four extra gym sessions plus nutrition and. And everything that the men get, we just get. We also get it, especially at Leeds. Um, but the expectation is that you still train up to 30 hours a week, which I just can't with a full-time job commit to, which is one of the other reasons where I have to leave it to the younger girls who are students and who don't work that much. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, kind of, it's the beauty of it. And they are working really hard, and it will be a lovely day when there are some even semi-pro contracts going out there, even if it's just the England girls or, or whatever it might be. But... There is something quite nice about the fact that the girls are willing to work that hard. Oh, we, we said, Robert, about diversity in the first half, and I guess 
in terms of growing the game, women's game, wheelchair game, the two big growth areas at the moment. Yeah. They are. They provide a massive opportunity, really. I think because they are such untapped resources, especially in this country, I think there's a danger with it, though, that all of a sudden we think it's the panacea that it, that it really isn't. And I think Danica's just come up with some really valid points around should payers be paid? Is the women's game better than some of the men's game? There's a lot of arguments to be made around that. I think... I think I would hope we don't make the same mistakes we've made in the men's game when we develop the women's and the wheelchair. Whether we can do that is interesting. And I think part of that links to the women's Super League, specifically if we talk about the women's game, uh, has increased participation significantly and has now seen a huge growth in girls' games. So... So that brand extension, and I think it could work in potentially in university rugby league and it could work in wheelchair rugby league. There's a point coming where you, you move away from being a men's Super League club, but you'll be just become a rugby league club and you may, and, and the most successful ones. The reality is that a lot of our women and wheelchair teams come out of foundations. They don't come out of the professional game. But the women's game, I have seen in the last 12 months, three further clubs move their women's team from inside their foundation to inside their performance team within their men's unit. So so that is a development. I, I would prefer us not to look at how we pay players, but how we develop the sport such that it actually is a sustainable sport and then eventually you can pay the players the right amount of money rather than... Uh, so my personal view, in '96, the sport failed itself because what it said it was going to do was it wasn't going to spend all its money on players. And every TV deal that I've seen, the whole of the amount of money has gone on players. Now, that's no disrespect to players. They, they deserve to be paid. And I know they don't get paid anywhere near the levels of rugby union or cricket or, or football. But if we'd have done a little bit more for thought and had a bit more foresight around some of the things we'd have done... Would we be now in the same position we are? Probably not. So in, in 2017, on, oh, no, 2014, when we signed our seven-year TV deal, if we'd have taken a cut of that and become our own broadcaster, would we have had a very different argument with Sky in 2021? Probably. Uh, would you have had a chance of going to Amazon or Netflix? Well, I don't know, but Amazon and Netflix are not their own broadcaster, so... People who say we should be going to bro to broadcast companies like that and saying, come and watch it, take our sport, well, with respect, they don't produce the rugby league and therefore, unless you do it yourself, you're not going to do that. So, And that's that can be looked at in hindsight, by the way, but I think you learn those lessons now when we look at wheelchair and women and PDRL. There's a lot of goodwill in those areas. Uh, there's some phenomenal athletes. My, my son plays in a girls team, I think there are two players in that, even at 11 years of age that I'm convinced will play Women's Super League because they are athletes and now there is, because of Women's Super League a girls pathway for them to follow, whereas when I used to referee at the same level there were girls who were probably equally as skillful lost to the sport because the game gets tough when you start playing against pubescent 13, 14 year old boys and they go from being 4 foot 5 and not really able to tackle to being 6 foot beasts and smashing people all over the park so so there, there is a great opportunity uh, I just think we need to rein back from the idea personally speaking of thinking that paying players will be the panacea because I don't think it will be 
I think if we build the foundations right, and this isn't great for Danica or even for Jodie, who, who, who is somebody I speak to regularly and has got a great opportunity in the job she's taken, if you build it all around paying players, it's a race to the bottom, is my opinion. Because the, the money will not come in at the level we want it to come in to do that. And you've only got to look at sports where TV deals are on the decline to see that happening, and, and rugby league is one of those. At the we minute. just need we need a consistent season. We've never yeah. we've not had since seventeen or the soft launch of the Super League a cons- two consistent seasons. Every season has changed. Yeah, halfway through the season it's changed. There hasn't been anything consistent. And like you say, with we are under the, at Leeds, we are part of the performance unit. We're going to be playing against Huddersfield, who can barely scrape a training pitch together. But they are now classed as this new. Top half Super League, bottom half Super League. Well, no, that's to me is a, a, a bad as it sounds. We've got a six-team Super League now and a Championship again. What? Because that's what they're going to do next season. They've split it. Don't you be taking Super League status away from Wakefield fans? <laughs> I think the ca- counter argument to that would be that if you'd have left all twelve teams in a division, would you have lost a significant number of those players? Because the reality is, at the minute, there are three exceptional sides, well, two exceptional sides, two decent sides, and then four in the middle, and then a couple at the bottom who are really struggling. And are you not better trying to put them into groups where, we could argue about player welfare, by the way, of putting those lesser athletes against the stronger athletes. I, I I don't think there's a perfect solution to it, and I don't want to sound like Ralph when I say that, but... Uh, I don't think there is a perfect solution because. Do you know? No, there is. Do you know what it is? We've come along the elite status, which is phenomenal, and we're not. Because I think it was two seasons ago we were talking about disciplinary, and we'd seen red cards in the women's game, but then the next game they were playing, and there was nothing consistent. And then we've come elite, and now we're in line with the men, but yet none of our rules, none of our rules, but in terms of player transfers or the things we've seen, the demise of two or three clubs this season, because we've not got the people cut up and leave. You can just, you know, if I'm halfway through a season with Leeds, I get bored, I go sign for Huddersfield. There's no, and it, we're not paid, so that, where's the fine line between this player transfer thing? But you need to have consistent rules in order to make sure that we can build the squads, we can build the teams. And if you do want to leave or you do want to transfer, there has to be a certain time frame in which to do that rather than, you know, so Bradford at the minute are basically saying, look, we'll offer you free PT or we'll offer you you know, through Jordan Lilly because he's linked to the club. So it's you have, to, you have to go all the way back down to where do you want the women's game to sit? Do you want us to be in the elite category alongside the men? Well, therefore, we have to have... that. The, they have to have the same structure as that, despite the pay or... Because we're not bothered about the pay. That's the ironic thing. The women, it's nice. Give me 50 quid for my fuel or whatever the week. You know, that, that'd be lovely. But nobody's actually in the women's game bothered about it. We just want the consistency to know exactly, A, that the teams are safe, so we can build and play. And B, the only prerequisite this year has been medical. We have to have a doctor at the, the game. So four games have been cancelled because there's been no doctor available. I think that was my fault because I was a, oh, going to be all the four of those games. Oh, well then. Well, you probably need to get medical degree then, don't you? I think there's two, <laughs> other, two other issues, though, when you come to the women's game in <coughs> the wheelchair. Um, and it'd be very interesting to get a historical perspective from Tony on it. What we have the chance to do is, firstly, from a narrative, tell some really good stories. Mm. We're not great at promoting the personalities of the sport. And even going back to the, you know, what Kevin's just done, Ellery Hanley was one of the people that was asked to comment on what he's done. And with the greatest respect to Ellery and the status that he's got in the game, he's two generations before. And whilst there are plenty of people that could have endorsed what 
Kevin was doing, clearly the BBC or whoever it was felt that they didn't have a big enough profile or certainly as big as Ellery. Um, so I think with the women's and the wheelchair, we do have a real opportunity to, to build personalities. Mm. Um, you know, Nathan's just been fantastically nominated for the Golden Boot long list. Now, the fact that he's on it, stories can be told about him now. Who is he? You know, why does he always play well in the big games and get man of the match and comes off the bench and changes games? You can tell a story. The backstories are great. Yeah. So I think there's that narrative which which is very important in the way the media is these days. It's really fractured. John will probably confirm that it's very hard to get stories out there unless you've got you know something more than they played well on that given fixture. Uh, I think the other thing is geography. And clearly, we've talked about. Northern powerhouse. Um, we've talked about um, you know the, the formation of the sport came out under the sport, but it was called Northern Union because it was played in the north. And expansion and/or growth, whatever you want to call it, has never been successfully done, which is possibly down to lack of resource. But what we have got at the moment, which I think is quite encouraging, is a women's super league in the south. Mm. And arguably, there's going to be more talent in the Midlands and the south of England to call in in a shorter space of time than there is in the north. I think it's the same with wheelchair that um, Nathan was saying the other year, that uh, the other week when we were talking, that Martin Coyd's already got a plan for wheelchair rugby league that is four divisions of ten teams across the country. It's not going to be restricted because once you see it, you know, you're as likely to get a team in Bristol as you are in Sheffield. Um, so I think that there are some really... Enc- Robert's clearly right that you can't run before you can walk. But what you have got is probably a wider canvas to paint on. I think the challenge you've got is the reality of the sport. It created the Women's Super League to increase the number of people playing it. That that was its first reason for being. Really, was it was ultimately it was born out of Sport England. That's the Sport England funding came on the basis of. Brand extension of Super League, where all your Super League clubs were in the north. It didn't want to just be Super League clubs, it needed to be other existing clubs, and it helped potentially Bradford and Featherston were both in the Championship. So I think that's the first thing I'd say. But then what it tried to become was make England great. And sometimes these things don't, don't naturally fit together. So if you were going to make England great, do you... I had this conversation with Jodie on Thursday night, so... And was quite provocative. Do you do you say you can only have three England internationals in every team, so that actually the level of the competition goes up every week, so there is some level of jeopardy around results and teams that aren't necessary. Is it better for it? So let me explain this better. Is it better for England that most of England's team come out of the St Helens team and therefore, bar when they play Leeds twice and potentially York twice, yeah. they don't go under any adversity and they never really struggle. And with respect, even when they play York, they didn't really go under the pump, or is it better that you put the, the talent across six teams and have ten games which are in jeopardy, but that then reduces your argument about having a viable Super League extension brand. So, so when you're building something up at the beginning, you've got to understand what you're trying to do. And, and yeah. I think at the minute we're trying, uh, too often, and this happens in all levels of our sport, repeating our mistakes we've made throughout, is we try and be all things to, to all people, better not fall, fall for the obvious phrase there but if we can narrow down what our purpose is I think that will help then help us grow I, I think longer term I think the Super League will go back together yeah. I think yeah, it's I'm got sure. to go smaller two divisions to become better personally speaking but in five years time 
it might look very different to what it does now. And if you don't perhaps make some unpopular decisions, and I, I accept your point on, on, on regulation. I don't think it's all about regulation. I think it's also about club buying. And I think it's about clubs providing an offer to players that make them want to stay rather yeah. than just being there because they're a good team. I, I would hope that we can, with the growth of the girls' game, make Women's Super League a 10-team competition. I, I accept what you say about Martin and a 10-team, four-division thing. I, that would be fantastic. But at the minute, what have we got? We've got one division with probably four good teams in it. That's thir- so we've got to find 36 new teams how, how quickly do you get to that? Feels a bit like you've just thrown an, ar- an arrow down the down the. What like Cornwall? Potentially, <laughs> we, we've had that debate about Cornwall today. But I'd like the. Idea, I, I think I, we I weren't recording that. Hopefully. No. Oh, I wish this could be on our league now because I'd imagine this would be a great discussion where you just go to Jody. So we're going to get rid of ten of your teammates and spread them all around the league to weaken you, but it'll make make England better. But then, uh, for me, the biggest thing is having a neutral England head coach because. Where's, where is your, where's your loyalty when there's a, I don't know, there's a, there's a league game where Saints are playing Leeds and it's a big game and you know that you want to be a few players, but also then there's York versus Cass over here or there's Huddersfield versus Featherstone where I don't know, you know the, the, the coach needs to go out and spread and see more because in all reality, as good as Craig is and how great St Helens is, there's no denying that and the work he's put in there because they are a phenomenal side and individually phenomenal players. Uh, more so really but then where does he get to see that there are now two or three potentials going to Huddersfield but that's going to bring up the, the pool there and I don't know you know it's, it's, the, it's the bigger picture isn't it like I'm all for at the minute girls playing where we want to play because we're not paid you can play where you want to play play where locationally but in order to make England great or however you want to do it you either increase the EPU pool so that there's more people in the performance pool because at the minute there's 23 24, so basically, unless you break a couple of legs, you're going to the World Cup at the minute because you're going to take 23 to a World Cup. Is that a talent pool? Is that a pool where you're going to go and fight for your position? Is that a place where you're going to go and learn? Or do you want to have 40, 40 girls in there? I don't know how the men's work, how many are in the men's. But do you want to go have a train with 40 where you can have four different sections maybe or 10 against 10, you know, a couple games against 10? And you can actually see girls play at a high level with... A winger playing outside Jody, um, outside Amy Hardcastle, or you know, a, a second row playing alongside, you know, Shani Crowell or whatever. How do you bring up the rest of the girls in the, unless they play with the higher, more experienced players? So there's, I, I don't know, I don't have any answers. I have lots of ideas, but you know, it's that, that and all of that create needs funding. The testing point is going to be the World Cup next year because, as Danica knows, yeah. yeah, she's played at that level. There is a fair gap between the Australian and the Kiwi teams and the growth and the money that's in the game there in the women's game compared to here. And they have. I, well, I would agree because yeah. I was on the I was on the World Cup final in seventeen on the line, and that was a phenomenal game. game of rugby league, and it was probably more physical than some of our professional men's games yeah. in some ways. <laughs> and they have only gone well, bar for the pandemic where they, they made a bit of a mess of it, didn't they? Mm. They they have only gone one way in terms of what they've tried to achieve. We've tried to do two things. We, I think we've come a long way from where we were in 17. I think we're a long, long way further. The quality of the girls playing in, the, in, in England at the minute is ridiculous. Like, we talk about Jodie, and I think she's the, probably the best example of, of development in the sense that 2017, she was an out-and-out fullback. And if we're completely honest, we wouldn't, we'd hope they wouldn't kick to her. 
we knew that she'd be last ditch tackle, we knew that she'd have that, but in terms of full back scale, we were like, Joe, to be careful, someone's coming to you or whatever. Whereas you go forward four years, the girl can play in about five different positions and play phenomenally well in every single position she's put in. That's player development. Where's that development come from? The level of coaching, the level she's playing with, the girl she's playing with, the standard of games, the training in England, so we trained six times before we flew out to a World Cup in the whole year. They're now training every Saturday or every other Saturday. So and that's exacerbated the problem in Women's Super League because yeah. if all those players are in three clubs, the other five or nine teams, however it would be now, ultimately aren't training at that level all the time. So you do get further of these blowouts. And the reality is that has an impact upon retaining players in the competition. Because oh, if you are, and I'm just going to use the name Wakefield, and you are getting beaten every week by Saints and then going to Leeds the week after and then going to York, it, it has a negative effect on, on that psyche. I, I used to play in a team that used to get beat 18-0 every week, you know, so I can well imagine how it feels like. Trust me, I was at the end of season award. Well, I was at the end of season award to Wakefield. There's no lack of team spirit in those games. No, no, that, that's oh, the no. point. I'm they I'm they need to be in a competition yeah, yeah, yeah. that actually suits the level of the players that are there because that will make them better and that's why... Growing the women's game has to be done smartly and it has to be done in a way that doesn't damage the sport yeah. longer term just so that England can get to the World Cup in 2022 and have a chance. It actually should be thinking about actually winning the World Cup in 2029, probably not 2021. But I know how a sport works and I know how a sport England works and UK sport. If we turn around and said, we're going to bin off the 22 World Cup, we're going to bin off the 25 World Cup, they'll say, fine, there's no funding for you anymore. When you, when you go back to the important thing that Phil mentioned, which is because we don't have any people or anyone knows, so, you know, it would have been, I, I guess, uh, when whoever phoned the Bellevue Hamley, they tried to phone Martin a five, but he was too busy finding somewhere to plug his car into. Who, who is Nathan Collins? Who are you? Who, what, is, what is your... <laughs> what's your story? We need to make you a star. <laughs> I don't know. I used to play a running game when I was younger, and um, I played for two different teams. And when I was um, playing, I got um, told by one of the teams that I was too small to play, uh, about uh, 12 to 14 that age group. And um, one week I was in the squad to play in the cup game. And then the next week he said, you'll, you'll be resting for the next game, and we'll have you for the week after. I didn't get called that week after. And then... Um, yeah, didn't get invited back, so I moved teams. And then um, th- this was when I was playing the wheelchair game at the time. Um, once I moved back to my old team that I first started at, um, yeah, I played there for a couple of years, but then I just wanted to focus on the wheelchair side of it mostly. So, yeah. uh, and now you obviously won the double with Leeds this year. Challenge yeah, treble, and, yeah. Uh, oh, treble, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Starred in the, the test series against France. When you see the wheelchair game growing in the fuse, we talked about how the women's game is growing, but it seems that that spotlight has almost now been thrust onto the wheelchair game in the last six to eight months. Yeah, hopefully we can grow a bit more. You know, all these TV coverage and stuff like that is hopefully growing the sport even more, so getting more fans in. If it's more fans that come in, cover to play and stuff like that so if if we can get more people in playing more teams playing like I said before Martin can try to get the 40 teams in if it does get to that stage that would be like amazing you know more people to push us to play better at England and stuff like that so 
I mean, the, the thing I've noticed about watching the games on TV and then in the arena, uh, especially the, the test matches recently, the way you introduced on, onto the pitch with the lights off, the spotlights mm-hmm. on you, that, that is some presentation. It really makes it look like a big event. Yeah, definitely. You know, they've done it for a couple of times before. You know, in, um, they did it for the Euros in um, 2015. I didn't play that. I was watching it and I thought, you know, that must be amazing to, you know, sit in front of and have the cameras on you. So, to do it then, yeah, it was amazing. No pressure on you, but, you know, yeah. we're signing the, the men and women out when we the World Cup, so it's all, it's all on you now, mate, when you think so. <laughs> but we'll all be cheering you on, I mean, that's the one thing. And, uh, Tony, where, where, where does the wheelchair game, the women's game, sit in, in the, the, the vast tapestry of the history of our sport? Well, the women's game goes back to, uh, well, in Australia, to 1921, when um, uh, there was a big movement uh, to play rugby league in Sydney and to a lesser extent in Brisbane. Um, in, in Britain, unfortunately, the, when, well, there's a great example here in Featherstone, when women in Featherstone wanted to play rugby league in 1921, they were told by the men in the game that they should go and play soccer because that's a game for girls. So in England, <laughs> we were a, bit behind, we were a, a long way behind. It wasn't until the 1950s that women actually started playing. Uh, and then into the 60s. But the, I think the other thing to bear in mind, going back to what you're talking to Neil about in terms of records, that you know, there were women's lions did tour in the 1990s. I mean, this was a big thing, and Julia Lee's got a big grant from the Heritage Lottery Fund to rescue that history and promote that history and celebrate that history over the next couple of years. So, um, you know, this idea that everything started in 2017 is... It's completely wrong. There's a lot of people still around who established women's clubs in the 1980s. Um, that was, if you like, the first wave of women's rugby. And wheelchair rugby, obviously, it's much, it's, 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 it's much newer, but it's part of that, um, it's part of that tapestry of, uh, of rugby league in that people, you know, people find a way to play the game. And I think the other thing that's going on, why, why it's so important, not just important because... You know, it's, it's part of making the game more inclusive. But if you look at the world of sport all, all over the world, then um, where sport is making big step foot, big strides forward in terms of participation and support, it's in women's sports and it's with, it's with disability sports. And we need, to, we need to, to, to kind of phrase from ice hockey, we need to skate where the, to where the puck is rather than thinking about where we are today. And in 10 years' time, women's sport, in all aspects, will be absolutely massive. Disability sports will also be massive as well. So we need to, as Robert said, we need to get our structures in place now and figure out what we're doing. I think part of that is making sure we've got consistency so that people know where they are, know how the game is played, know what to expect when they start playing, and also to develop develop communities, because not everybody is going to... Follow the pathway to play for England, playing World Cups. What happens when they decide, you know, like Danica, when they decide to retire? What role they're going to play? What role can people play in, in their clubs anyway? And I think this is a, rugby league develops like you know, like football as well. Rugby league developed as a sport that grew out of its communities, and the structures that grew out of that were the structures that in the men's game we're left with today, by and large. And so we've got a lot we can learn from the past and put the structures that learn the lessons but are also basing communities into the wheelchair game into the women's game now as it starts to develop I'm going to ask John a big question in a minute, but a quick one Danica because I, this is a point of question Woman of Steel Award do you yeah. want to just name it after Andrea Dobson 
So going back to the, the history of the women's game, I think it's really important that pre-2017, we know more about when Andrea Dobson is the stalwart, but you're looking back further at the Brenda Dormax, Julie yeah. Lees and everything like that, and, and yeah. that, it's a Jackie much bigger Shelby, picture. Yeah. So, you know, uh, 2017, 2018, we signed, you know, Leeds got this team together, they offered us everything, we're still part of the foundation, and I've got young girls like Caitlin Beavers and, and the young ones coming through. Um, it's really, it seems really menial, but in the changing rooms... You get you walk into the changing rooms for lead rhinos, you've got your kit set up, which is just for us and for the girls beforehand, such a privilege. But the younger girls at 17, 18 at the time, it's a given. And there's no history for them. There's, they don't know the history of the women's game, which is really sad. They don't know how hard and how tough people work to get a GB squad, to how to get an England squad, to go, you know, I had to pay to go on my first England tour. I had to pay for the privilege to go and play for my country uh, in France in 2015, which wasn't even that long ago. Yeah. You know, and, and it really frustrates me that we, Andrew Dobson is just one of the most phenomenal people I've ever played with and I've ever had the privilege of knowing, but it's even pre-Andrew that we need to go back to when, no, the woman steals on the field, man steals, man steals, it's not after anybody. I only jumped on the bandwagon in twenty. Maybe the Challenge Cup, you know, no. the, woman of match, the, woman of, the woman of the game for the Challenge Cup maybe needs to be more Lance Todd-esque, but no, woman of steals, woman of steel, and it needs to, the history of the women's game is super important for the women at the minute who are playing it who are a little bit overprivileged with what we do get. Just don't mention Harry Sutherland. No. <laughs> so we can contribute. If you are, you can do whatever you want. I, I just want to... I feel very strongly about the history of the women's game and, and the people who people hardly anyone knows about. Mm. Way back, late 1980s, I was chair of leisure at Wakefield Council and I got some funding for a rugby league development officer. And while we were negotiating the funding, I went to watch a women's match at Halifax. And I just could not believe what I saw. There was a young lass there who reminded me of Ellery Hanley in the way she played. Uh, and I went back into the council offices and talked to my officers and said, this rugby league development officer ought to be getting the opportunities for women in the Wakefield district to play. And that led to Wakefield Panthers, which ironically is now the Featherston team. But it was Lisa McIntosh. Mm. was... And I talked to people and hardly anyone's ever heard of Lisa McIntosh. She was a phenomenal player. And yet all our history of rugby league, you try and find a reference to Lisa McIntosh and you'll be really struggling. So that is part of the history that desperately needs Julius Lee's work and other people's work to uncover and become part of our heritage because players of that age, era, seem to have been completely forgotten about. Agreed. <coughs> Half has not necessarily gone as I expected. I, I think that's quite a common thing, though, just building on that theme. I think we're very bad at telling, you know, no offence to Tony, but widely telling our own history and our own stories. I was... I was uh, on, on Saturday, I played in an X-League tournament, and I'm after one of the other players who I didn't really know very well, he's from Home, home Firth, he's a Leeds Rhinos fan, and we're, we're talking about rugby league, obviously, 
Um, and we somehow got on to Adrian Morley and he was sort of saying, you know, is he the best player, in my opinion, the English player that's played in the NRL? And I said, well, I'm a bit biased, but I think Malcolm really. And he's, he'd never heard of Malcolm really, and he's a 27, 28-year-old person. And it's that kind of thing. And I didn't, I think I, until a year or two ago, I never knew anything about Roy Francis, you know. And in Australia particularly, they think most people think the game started in 1908. So there's just so many examples of that in the women's game, the men's game. Um, I think it's a, quite a sad thing that we don't embrace our own history and celebrate the good things as well as acknowledge the bad things. But, yeah, we are bad at, at doing that. I mean, the good news about the future is, according to the latest 1420 magazine, which is out now in all good uh, news agencies... <laughs> even in feathers? Even in feathers. Uh, ..is that uh, this £100 million pound film... We're going to get £100 million, which obviously we're not going to spend on players. If, if it was up to me, I'm obviously between Danica and, and Nathan because they sat here. And uh, the rest of it, I'm, you know, trousering my back pocket. What, what are we going to do with it, Phil, apart from spending it on bad boys from the NRL? Food for the media? I think at the moment, <laughs> the, the £100 million is, is a nominal figure. I think what we can say is there, there is interest from outside of the game that wants to financially support it. Whether the game itself has to change a little bit to embrace that finance in the way it's governed, um, that's the debate that's going on with the strategic review group at the moment. Who do you bring in? Who's the partner, ideally, rather than the uh, determiner of, of how your sport should be? But there is interest. Um, the, the 100 million is a figure that's being banded around, which is a nice round figure, so it clearly isn't that. But I think it goes back to um, exactly what Rob was saying about 1996. You, you know, when the pandemic hit, Rugby League had no assets, but it was coming out of a period where it's never been richer. That can't be right. Um, we don't own a stadium. You know, we've, we've looked in envy. No, we, we do own a well, we own a well, we don't own a stadium <laughs> that we can get 80,000 people in and all the beer and crisps that they buy comes back to the game. Um, we don't have the luxury to make money on the back of an international programme, which is why, unfortunately, we don't prize the international programme enough. Um, and, and again, everybody can talk about restructure, what this £100 million or whatever it might be might bring. And we, we probably could all give an idea of what our preferred structure would be while, while we sit around this table and in the audience. But, but the truth is that you've got to have a longer-term strategy than just paying the players or bringing somebody in and saying, uh, where would you like the game to be played? It's, it's actually not quite as simple as that, and it never has been, and we've never embraced it. I, I, I think it was really interesting the other week when Hunslet announced that they'd signed two of West Wales Raiders' best young <coughs> players. To me, that's why we will never grow the sport. We can debate as long and hard as we like about have we made a huge mistake with Toronto, and was that in the latest line of clubs that were set up to fail... Is there no the, the fact that there's no real grassroots in the Cornwall area? Why at the moment are we determining to take a team there? Um, is the Midlands <coughs> Hurricanes model, where at least there is a history and tradition of grassroots in the West Midlands area, and what Coventry have tried to do, indeed, in bringing in junior teams underneath that brand Coventry, a better way to go? Do regional teams work? If you if you're talking about, I don't, you know, feeder teams. All of this needs to be debated before you just say, there's £100 million, the existing 12 clubs can have the lion's share of it, and 25 years' time we go, actually, we didn't grow a single thing. I mean, obviously, John, what Super League needs is three teams from the WF postcode area in the top division. I'm fully in favour of that. Um, what, what, what would you do? If you ran rugby league, I'm, I'm going to put you in the hole. <laughs> I, I was going to ask everyone this, and I realised I can't ask everyone this on the panel. 
But I'm going to put you in the top job. You're in the top job now. What are you going to do? As I said, I had this conversation uh, in the pub on Saturday, and I said, "Have you got a few days?" So exactly the same as what happened. At um, yeah, there's no, there's no easy answers. There's no simple solutions. I think, in my experience, and not to be a tad negative, but um, a lot of the issues is either with people who won't change or people who aren't willing to change, and a lot of attitudes, mindset. Um, there's a lot of people who who won't listen to outside voices or won't you know don't don't take kindly criticism even if it's meant in a particularly good way, um, but there is a lot of potential there and there are there are a lot of good things in the sport, um, a lot of positive things, but it is incredibly fractured, um, and the politics it is just ridden with with politics and, and rival egos and. I don't see that. Don't you think that's the case though? Even in Australia, they just the yes, it is. Yeah. just got a lot of money. They've got a lot more money, they've got a lot more people playing the game, they've got a lot yeah, more interest. But, but yeah, yes. I get that, yeah. but the game over there is fractured to an extent of, it is, yeah. ultimately, whether they, they want to admit it or not, the NRL clubs decided whether the Kangaroos were coming to this World Cup. Yeah. And, and the Kiwis as well. So they're in the yeah. same position we're in, mm. in this country, I just think that they've just got pots more money. And I would, by the way, I would say football's the same. So mm. deep down, football is in exactly the same position, it's just got... Bucket fulls of money. Yeah, Every sport's run on self-interest. Like the I think. I think if they, the NRL didn't have a billion-dollar TV deal and state of origin that makes yeah. so much, they would. They would look to play England more. They'd look to play France. Et but the models that work are where the collective is better than the parts. Mm. So the NFL is all built around the NFL brand, not necessarily around exactly. the Buffalo Bills or mm. the 49ers. It's built around the whole brand of that. Uh, and, and the NBA, and I know, by the way, we can get into World Series and Super Bowls and all that, but, but actually they are the only models that genuinely generate money massively. I mean, and the Premier League makes money, doesn't it? We, we'll all accept. But there's not that many clubs in the Premier League make money. They just take what they get from the TV deal every year, with probably the exception of five Premier League clubs mm. who nearly all went and played in the European Super League because they wanted to make even more money. That, that, that is your point, he's right. It's every sport. And yeah, actually, specifically in, in, in England, it's English sport. It doesn't make money because it's not about. You've got to make it about an experience where the result doesn't matter. But actually, deep down, our whole sport is, is built around our team winning, yeah. whoever that might be. And that's why we're so determined to have away fans and we're so determined to have good home crowds. But actually, deep down, the World Cup will be better because it'll pick up an event. Pick, event audience who don't care who wins they'll just want a great experience and in a great stadium just to tack on to that and what Richard asked and part of the problem is the history mm-hmm. of the game here yeah. is that at least in Australia because of the Super League war there was mergers there was a wretch from that history and there's been, I mean there's still elements of it, there's still too many clubs in Sydney etc etc but there is at least a, a fissure between the professional game and the semi-professional game and the amateur game, while well, here everyone aspires to be in Super League, everyone has an equal say, which kind of leads to, you know, certain clubs will never, you know, Oldham, unless Roman Abramovich or someone with equal money is never going to be in Super League. Should be. Yeah, well, I know you're fair. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's probably the never going to happen. Um, but there seems to be, well, a lot of people seem to think no, promotion rele- right. relegation is part of British DNA and it has happened. But you can't have salary cap and promotion relegation and competing and part time and full time exactly and, and you can you can have part time and full time in football where you can put everyone behind the ball and 
you know, knock one over and get a second man in and maybe nick a goal and then just defend. You can't do that in rugby league. It just doesn't... I mean, West Wales have probably tried it and been beaten 150-0 not that long ago. It just doesn't happen. So it's actually getting harder, the gap. And the more professional you get and the, yeah. more, the bigger the bigger clubs come. In the game. 90s, it was probably, you know, feasible. But, yeah, it's just... That gap is there. And obviously the gap, you know, we talk about the Broncos, you know, they get 30,000 people at least every game. You know, they're in a media market of a million people. The gap there between some of the smaller clubs is big enough. And then if you put the gap here between a a Rochdale and a St Helens, it's never really going to be met. So that that's an issue. We are kind of hamstrung by our own history. Well, I think that's one of the issues, though. There's there's a... Rugby, well, the RFL has to do so many different jobs... You know, in reality, it administers the professional game, has to do grassroots development, has to look after students. It does everything. Whereas in most other sports, that's not simply the concern of one governing body. So it's incredibly difficult. We don't have the resource of those other sports. And you know, this is why you know, the, often what happens is it's the least worst option that's chosen. When in fact, and this is why the NFL and baseball and the NBA are so successful, it's done because essentially those are dictatorships that the governing bodies tell the clubs what, what they have to do. And if you don't like it, fine, go and start your own competition. And we're not in a posi- the RFL is not in a position to do that because it was founded essentially as a cartel of the clubs. And it's, it's an incredibly difficult thing to do to undermine that sense that the clubs have that they are in effect the owners of the game. When they're not, because there's far more than the professional clubs play the game, but that's what the sport was founded on, and that's the difficult problem that has to be solved, I think, before we can go you forward. Can, you can look at the NBA, too, and how it changed in the 70s and 80s, and yeah. then in 92, there was the NBA and the ABA, yeah. they were both struggling competitions. I can't remember who was the commissioner or whatever, but they essentially merged the two, got kicked out some of the other clubs, and then you had an influx of two-star players in Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, who, and then Michael Jordan, the talent of the 80s, NBA became a lot more popular, a lot more successful, and then the 92 Olympics, and we can talk, tie this into the World Cup, international competition, for the first time, the, the full American pros were allowed in, and the Dream Team and everyone around the world went, oh, this is amazing. And now if you look at the NBA, there's players from Canada, there's players from Argentina, from France, and they are some of the best players in the world. And the NBA is more international than it is American or you know, purely American. So that... Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Tony. And until that happens, we're not going to get a huge amount of change. And to add to that, ultimately, each club is its own individual business. Yeah, yeah. So it's all well and good saying we shouldn't have a club here or we should have a club there. But ultimately, if you if you are a member of the RFL, you are your own business. You can run your club how you should run your club. So, uh, and that's right, by the way. If you if you don't do that, you get into argument, legal arguments around shadow directorships. We've had all those arguments before with clubs in the history of the game. So it's not as straightforward as saying, oh, well, we can kick the RFL all you want. If, you, if people are so, so minded, I can have that argument with anybody who fancies having it. The game was built by revolution. It's, it's run by a lot of people who ultimately put money into their clubs. They're not taking money out of it, so therefore they have a right to have their own opinion because they probably spend a lot more money in their, their club than I spend in rugby league or even fans spend in their clubs. You know, they, they're, if you, 
you could have this argument with one or two owners who would say there's two people in the sport, there's those who put in and those who take out, and the people who put in are fans and owners, the rest take out, and it's not far wrong. Um, and then you add in the, the amateur dynamic, that was then had a revolution in the 70s and Barlow was born, and then it, it tried to come back together in, in the early 2000s, and ultimately at, having had to lead on a project that's now making the, the, the governing body unpopular, uh, we live in a world where things cost money. Yeah. Everything costs money. You know, you can't now go down the shop and buy a 10p bag of sweets anymore when you could when I was a kid. So the reality is the world costs money. You can't keep saying we want this for free. Oh, and by the way, we ain't going to Wembley. So the only chance we have to compete is to sell our major events out. Yeah. Well, I listen to loads of people telling me it's a disgrace we don't sell Wembley out. Well, with respect, we can't even engage our core audience. We shouldn't have to mar- I shouldn't have to market the Challenge Cup final, to any person who loves rugby league because it generally is a good final, it's in a great stadium and you can have a great day or a weekend out. Certainly the same for the grand final. I can live with an argument it's a bit too expensive to go to Wembley. But you can go to Manchester on the train for about £10, £20 return if you book it long enough in advance. You can go and have four or five pints around Manchester. You can have a really good time with loads of people. And, we, and people say, oh, we didn't sell it out because Catalan were there. We shouldn't need to have Catalan. It shouldn't matter who's there. Because we have about 80,000 people who watch our sport week in, week out. They should buy all those tickets. Oh, that, that's what used to happen. Yeah. But now we've got three events and now people split across the three. So you've got to, you've got to bring in a new audience, which is that event going audience. And we're back in the same debate we were. But I listen to too many people who tell me that rugby league doesn't, make, doesn't do anything right. But deep down, we don't even engage our core audience. And it, do, it shouldn't need me to come up with a fancy marketing scheme or say how great player people are. Because I, they should know how great these players are. I mean, for anybody who didn't want to go and watch Catalan and St. Helens live and then start telling me that the sport doesn't market enough, well, with respect, have a look in the mirror and ask why you didn't go yourself, because you could get a ticket for 20 quid, you know, I, I'm sorry, I, and I can say that about any, any of the finals that I've been involved in, they're generally great events, and we, we talk about we want to get all these new people, well, let's get our core audience spending money, by the way, I appreciate some of them don't have money, so don't let me be too critical, it's... No, no, but I think, but I think, you're, I think you're right, because one of the things that the game faces that isn't acknowledged enough is that there's a lot of objective problems. The fact that people don't have money, which is one of the reasons why people don't go down to Wembley, because there's other things you want to do, and you might not have the money. Certainly over the last 10 years, the way things have got worse. And we are, and the, the other overriding issue is that we are predominantly in deindustrialized northern towns. That are, and there's, there's not a lot we can do about that. And so I agree, you know, it's it's hard to the RFLs to do X, Y, and Z. But even if it could... There are objective problems that we face that are very difficult to solve. There are, but some of them are of our, are of our own making, like loop fixtures. Um, like, I mean, for example, when the fixtures come out on the 25th of November, one of the one of the ones that most Super League clubs fans will be looking for are Toulouse and Catalan. When are we going over there? They do find the money to go and, and make it an event. Um, the Challenge Cup final has its own issues. There's never going to be a shock in it. It's going to be another Super League fixture. We don't necessarily know who's going to be in it, but it is going to be... That was why the 1895 Cup works, yeah. because it brings two clubs there who, who should but be... That, but it goes back from again the to, if there is a will and a desire to say there is a professional game and there is a part-time game, then you have to give each of those halves something that is meaningful to play for, which is something we debated on. 40-20 for as long as it's been, been going on. 
that yeah. the 1895 Cup and a Championship Grand Final that doesn't necessarily lead to promotion, but maybe has a big cash incentive behind it, that is the way to look after that part of the game. The, the fully professional side that's going to bring in your event culture audience, we haven't got the structure right. And it's not about teams, it's about how many times you want these teams to play. How do you manage to make events... See, I don't totally agree with you, and I'll tell you why. A few years ago, I went to watch the varsity match at Twickenham. There wasn't one person there who watched, in, in the company I was in, who watched one minute of that game. They were there because it was the seen-to-be event, must-be-at event of that day in that, in that kind of demographic. Event-going audiences don't necessarily care. It's the third time that Saints have played Wigan. You're right about fans do, but... That doesn't explain why we don't get the event-going you know audience I, at Wembley. I think Wembley. we've got two specific problems at the moment. One is how do we attract a new audience? And is that a shorter form of the game? I know that you, you passionately don't think so, and you're probably right. Um, is it um, making more events within the current season? But also, how do, how do we even address and retain a core audience? We've never really had to do that. It's been assumed that they will come. There's a group of fixtures... That's what you pay. I mean, was it this week that Lee announced their season ticket prices to play in the championship? It's going to be twenty-five or twenty-seven pound a game. I know they may need that money to fund the squad that they want to buy, but it's completely unrealistic for existing Lee fans to be paying that amount of money. We don't engage with our core audience in any way whatsoever. Before we get kicked out. The big question of the night, obviously, because uh, we're in a room full of Ferguson fans. The people listening on the podcast and watching later, they don't know there's no one here, which we've talking to ourselves about. Too. <coughs> Brian McDermott, Big City Brian, comes to the wedding in York on Saturday, full of Featherston fans who came straight to me and said, you're the one off that podcast. Yes, I am the one off that podcast. You, know, you should know about rugby. I don't know anything about rugby. I don't know anything that's going on. We don't like Brian McDermott. He said, we're a small town. Sell... Brian McDermott to the Featherston people. You know him. Um, if they win the grand final, they will parade him around the town. <laughs> well, if they lose the grand final, they stick his head on their stick. Well, that, they've bought him to win the grand final, haven't they? I think the um, there's two ways of looking at his quote. One is, taken out of context, he said, the sport needs big city clubs, who we happen to be coaching at the time. Uh, expansion. He actually said there is a place for Featherston. If, if you watch the full quote, he actually did say, I'd like to commend Featherston, there is a place for Featherston, but where will the sport be in five or ten years? So all he was promoting was the debate that we've just been having. Um, I, I think they've signed a coach who is a proven winner, who, if they get into games at the end of the season where they need to play a certain way, a specific way to win that match, They've got arguably the guy to do it. Uh, I do think that the championship at the top end is going to be fascinating this year because most people thought we'd be going to two tens at the end of this season and have, and have recruited accordingly. So you, you've got Featherston, you've got Lee, you've got, I think Halifax have probably bought more players than anybody else. You've got York, who are very ambitious as well. You've got Bradford, who are the supposed sleeping giant. Um, now, all of those know there's a window for promotion. So a couple of years ago, they all sort of knew Toronto at some point would be going up. They all sort of knew Toulouse were likely to be going up with the way that they've, 
This year, I don't think there is a standout team that will necessarily be the front runners, which makes it really oh, interesting. Which <laughs> <laughs> makes it very interesting. But if 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 you want a guy of proven success, give him a chance. Are you going to give him a chance? Well, actually, uh, last uh, when it was uh, Amsterdam Day, the 11th of November, I, we went down to our lovely famous war horse. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a member of Featherstone Town Council, and I'm also a district <coughs> councillor at, at Wakefield. And so I were, went down there to pay my respects. And our CEO, Martin Vickers, came down and he brought Brian with him. Anyway, uh, the wedding laid a reason. I went to thank Martin for coming and he turned round to, uh, to Brian and went, this is Maureen, she's one of our supporters, da, da, da. And he put his hand out. Well, I was a lover of him, to be honest. <laughs> but I just took his hand and I looked at him and I went, I'm just going to tell you now, you want my first choice. <laughs> I said, but I'm prepared to give you the chance. If you get us where we want to be, then I'll be quite happy. I said, but don't worry, because I said, self and saying to Devil Powell when he first come to Featherstone, and by the time he left, we go like that. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm prepared to give him a chance, even though I did think he would have been bland and no persona, but... That, that's an image he cultivates, yeah, deliberately. probably, probably. What did, what, did he, what did he describe Gary Hedrington as that time? Well, I think you could say that, can't we? <laughs> probably not. <laughs> so, so on, I mean, here, here's the final question then. In tribute to Brian McDermott, on a scale of two to nine, where's Rugby League at the moment? Two being, because he can't be one, he can't be too depressed, he can't be too excited on ten. Where's Rugby League at the moment? I'll start with the end, Tony. I think we've probably got six. We've got a World Cup coming up. Um, things can get better. I mean, the, there's a lot of problems that the game has to deal with, and it always has had to do that. But, I, I, you know, you look at the pro. I hate to say what use the word product, but you look at the way the game is played on the pitch, whether you look at women's grand final, you look at wheelchair internationals, you look at Super League and the championship last season, you know, it's, it's a fantastic thing to, to, to watch. So, yeah, six, we can get a lot better and hopefully we will. What, Bill? I would say that we are at a crossroads moment and probably have been for the last... 12 to 18 months. I think that COVID unintentionally gave us one of the very rare occasions in sport where you can do some strategy work behind the scenes. And I'm not 100% convinced that we did enough of that. I think that's happening now in a more hurried and rushed manner than perhaps it needed to. Um, so I would say five and work in progress, but this is a really big moment for the sport for me. I, I'm old enough to remember the, the early 70s when this kind of debate was happening. Um, and we, we ushered in a new era when, when the clubs were really cash poor. So going exactly back to Robert's idea of how the sport is structured, how hard it is to change. When clubs have no money, it's easier to change. Um, and they brought in two or three people who were not the um, envisioned choices to take the game forward, yeah, particularly in David Hoxley, uh, David Hoxley and David Howes, with a little bit of um, John Huxley as well from the Daily Mirror doing his roadshow. Within 15 years, we were selling out 
Wembley for internationals. And the key for me is the international game is the first and most important piece in your jigsaw. And as long as whatever debates are going on at the moment, there is some way of elevating it, then we have potential. But I think we're at that nasal-gazing moment that you don't get that often and we have to get it right. I just asked for That's like the whole, whole of a column you've written. Right? I mean, you must be fairly positive, don't you? Because obviously you, you come off, obviously not a winning test series, but a, an exciting test series and a, and a good season for wheelchair ability. It's a spot on the up. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, it's, it, we're improving a lot. And, you know, we're making like little steps, but it's, you know, it's doing stuff. You know, bringing new teams in like Sheffield and done stuff like that. So we're definitely improving, like, going in the right direction. But you know, we can always do like more to make it better. Especially what we're saying, Bobby. You know, we're, we're kind of in the middle. We're we're, we're above average. We're, we're better than people say we are or think we are. People inside this ball. No, so I think we are at a very. I think Phil's answer was probably right. I, I think I don't think we're as low as five. By the way, I think we're at an exciting time, but I think we're at a precarious time as well. Um, I think the next twelve months will be pivotal, pivotal to where the sport goes next. I, I think the sport will exist. Because it's always existed and it's always found a way to continue. Uh, but the world is becoming increasingly cramped in terms of the marketplace. And rugby league has a lot of challenges. Uh, my son told me that the grand final post had gone up because he'd seen it on Manchester United's TikTok. He didn't watch the grand final till he saw the tries on his phone. So, so, the, so the world is massively changing and rugby league... I think we'll evolve and find a way through that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's as gloomy as people would make it out to be, uh, but there are some challenges ahead. I I think... I I, I think in the next six months, I think... If you ask me that in six months' time, I think the sport will look very different. Uh, But if it doesn't evolve now, it's not going to be what it is, and it's not going to be a professional sport. So... uh, I, I know a little bit what's going on behind the scenes in terms of the strategy group and the realignment and, and stuff that's potentially on, on with that. And I think genuinely, I think if the if the noises are right, and I don't see why they wouldn't be, I think the spot might look very different come come Easter. But as we sit here today, we're about to go into a new two-year TV deal. Let's remember the last TV deal for all people might decry Nigel was seven years. Uh, so that, that says a lot about what, where we are. Uh, the international game hasn't got anything beyond a World Cup in 2022. So I'd be a liar to say I thought it was an eight, seven, eight or nine, but I, I think in six months' time I could easily be saying it's a seven or an eight. I, and I think, I think people will be surprised at some of the things that are about in the offing. But, um, yeah, I, I think probably about a six. I'm sorry, I, I think we're probably at a six, and if you ask me in six months' time, I think we'll be a lot better than that. I, I would also say that it's very easy to sit here or, or sit in an audience or even listen to this podcast and say rugby league constantly shoots itself in the foot. I don't think it does. I, I think the least worst option is often taken. The least controversial option is taken. There, there's some, some exciting things going to happen. I, I, and I think the sport, 
I, I believe in certain people around the sport will deliver a fantastic World Cup. I, I, and I think the one thing it never fails to do is it, it always excites on the field of play. And I don't think we can go back as far as we want. The grand final last year, the Challenge Cup when Catalan beat Warrington, further back to the World Cup in seven. Uh, the World Cup in 17, the, the World Cup in 13, it produces fantastic sporting events. It'll continue to do that. Uh, but the, there's some massive challenges ahead. Let's not, let's not pretend there's not. I would say with the, the news today on the World Cup Challenge and maybe certain player signings and you know having been through a few rail from a press conferences, I'd say maybe a 4.5. Um, but if I look to next year, there's a, there's a French derby for the for the first time, um, there's a World Cup on these shores and I'll get to see Tommy Turbo in the flesh and the green and gold, so I'll go five, five and a half. I think for me, I would never necessarily badge the average rugby league fan if there is such a thing as an optimist. I think other words are probably better um, used to describe them. Um, the sense I get at the moment is that people are probably less optimistic now than they have been for a few years, though. And I think maybe regardless of what the actual score I would give, um, I think the trajectory of that score is probably the thing that's causing people more concern and has probably led to a lot of the debate and discussion that we've had a bit today. Um, my hope, I don't know if it's my expectation, but my hope is that 2022 become something of a turning point in that trajectory. And I think the fact we've got the World Cup at the end of the year does give a big opportunity to reinvigorate, I think, um, the average fan and the average rugby league spectator <coughs> and give that kind of optimism um, that I think people have been searching for for a while and the circumstance the world's found itself in in the last 20 months or so probably hasn't um, contributed a great deal to people's general optimism. Um, but yeah, for me, I'd have it in the kind of four to five region at the moment if I'm trying to gauge, I think, where the average fan is as well. Um, but I, I genuinely think that 2022 gives a lot of opportunity, um, as much as anything, just to bring some more optimism to the game. And, and if some of what Robert's kind of alluded to there does kind of come to pass and we do get some more positive stories and more positive news um, kind of coming centrally, um, I think everyone's kind of waiting and crying out for that, really. So hopefully the, the trajectory changes as much as anything as we go forward. I think that's, uh, that's what I'm hoping for in, in, uh, in the future, anyway. As the great Sir Kelly Spectrum said, a pessimist is never disappointed. Danica, where, where are you on the scale? You get the final word. Oh, mix it up a little bit. Uh, I've got to jump on the, the dovetails, really, of like Nathan and I have just come back from having TV coverage. We've had more coverage in the women's game this season than we've had ever. Um, you've got household names in the likes of Jodie Cunningham and Amy Hardcastle and uh, you know and, and Carrie Roberts and stuff like that. So in terms of where the women's game is and where the wheelchair game is going, I've got to look at the positives of that. I'm a maths teacher, so I'm looking at the men's and I'm bringing the averages together. Um, you know, and, and whether it's the fact that we've got to look at parts of the game to see how great that side of it's going and hopefully that can continue to grow and develop. Um, I'm going to go 6.3. You know, because I'm a teacher, it's, it's a figure, and, and I'm going to bounce. I mean, Nathan probably been the best year you've had for wheelchair, just in terms of coverage and, and, and being on TV. Same with the women's game, I've been on Sky and BBC this year, so yeah, 6.3. Finish on a high, guys. Rugby league average. Um, <laughs> Do you not give us a number? 
Or do you just ask the question? Oh, this, I'm just finished on a high now, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Debbie Downer over here. <laughs> just ask the question, though, as we've learned. Some of my questions are not as good as others, and that one lasted longer than I thought it would be. Uh, I mean, hopefully, we've passed the audition, we, we do this again at some point in the future. Uh, thanks to everyone on the panel tonight, uh, Professor Tony Collins, Phil Kaplan, uh, Nathan Collins, we wish you the best of luck. We've actually played in the World Cup next year. Robert Hicks, we wish well with his new role. Uh, John Davidson, who's on Patreon. Uh, Neil Olsen and uh, Danica Premier is on the telly and then a model now as well apparently. What? <laughs> All those massive <coughs> ten foot photos. Oh, I don't talk about that, yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, all of you, for coming. And uh, enjoy your place.